the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. In 2019, a resolution to declare a climate emergency was introduced to City of Ottawa Town Council. Activist pressure in support of the resolution was intense, with a protest outside City Hall calling on councillors to declare the emergency. Not surprisingly, the motion was passed. Ottawa therefore joined 510 cities across Canada and 1,997 across the world to have declared a climate emergency. In the U.S., New York City, Hayward, San Francisco, and Chico, California have all declared climate emergencies, and Hawaii became the first U.S. state to make the same declaration just over two years ago. Regarding the city of Ottawa's climate emergency declaration, Councillor Jenna Sud said, Quote, it is the young people who are inheriting the problems that we're all responsible for creating. Councillor Suds was right, but not for the reasons she thought. Fully enabled, the city's plans would endanger all Ottawans with regular blackouts and brownouts and vastly increase the cost of living for all residents. Yet, contrary to the assertions of climate campaigners, the plans would cause significant environmental harm while contributing to human rights abuses around the world. Furthermore, the impact on climate of Ottawa's almost $60 billion plan would be too small to even measure, let alone feel. To discuss the transportation-related cautionary tale of what happens when cities bow to climate activists, my guest today for the third time on this program is Robert or Bob Lyman. Bob spent 37 years in the Canadian public service as an economist and policy advisor and served as a Canadian diplomat with postings in Caracas, Venezuela, and Washington, D.C. In the late 1980s, he was senior director of energy policy when climate change issues first arose and was first federal co-chair of the Federal Provincial Committee on Climate Change. Bob was also the Director General Environmental Affairs in Transport Canada, where I worked for some time from 2002 to 2006, leading the analysis and policy development with respect to emissions reduction in the transport sector, development and implementation of climate programs, and promotion of technology development to reduce emissions in that sector. So welcome to the show, Bob. Well, thank you very much, Tom. That was quite a, a a tremendous uh, introduction you gave there. I kept thinking that was a sort of introduction that would have really pleased my mother uh, <laughs> and, and amused my father. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, we're going to focus mostly on the measures in the plan to do with transportation. So you have some concerns about various elements. Can you tell us a few of the things that you have concerns about with regards to transportation? Yes, certainly, Tom. Transportation uh, is w one of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions, of course, in, in Canada, as it is in the United States and other countries. And so it's been a particular target of those who want to reduce and eventually eliminate all of the hydrocarbon-provided services, uh, energy services that, uh, that we receive. In fact, the transportation sector uh, generally accounts for about a quarter of Canada's greenhouse gas emissions, uh, slightly more in the United States, probably about 30% there. 
but the portion that is represented by uh, light duty vehicles, that's cars and SUVs and, and uh, pickup trucks, is only about uh, 11%. And yet there is a tremendous focus on climate policies in Canada and the US and elsewhere upon reducing emissions from the automobile. It's, it's almost as though there's a war that governments are conducting against the private automobile. They, they conduct it on many fronts. And my, my concern in a way has been that the approach to dealing with climate be more realistic, but also that uh, it take, have a, a, a better understanding of what the impact on people who need transportation services will be. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was in Copenhagen for the climate conference in 2009, the Al Gore effect hit. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but the Al Gore effect says that wherever Al Gore goes, it gets colder. I mean, it just happens to be the case. But regardless, he's stopping climate change by just traveling, according to these uh, ideas. So we had the Al Gore effect and it was super cold. And I can remember standing on a street corner and there was this old lady, about 75, maybe 80, who was on a bicycle in the snow balancing with her groceries. And I said to her, thinking, oh, this is great. You know, they're, they're actually practicing what they preach. I said, oh, it's wonderful. You're on your bike in the winter. And she looked at me angry and said, it's because I can't afford a car. <laughs> I got home and I asked the landlord, I said, well, what's going on here? Well, apparently the taxes are incredible. And of course, that's indirectly what's happening here. I mean, they're trying to get people out of their cars. And I don't think very many, especially seniors, are going to appreciate this when it's minus 30. Well, no, exactly. In, in fact, I, I did some work on, on this subject of what is the, the general tendency of the public in, in Ottawa, in the city where you and I live, to commute by car or, or by other means? Because the, the objective of, uh, of the climate policy authorities today is to essentially reduce the percent of people who commute by car to no more than 50%. And mm -hmm. ideally, ideally to eliminate it, except, of course, people that are commuting in electric cars. In Ottawa, and generally in Canadian cities, the proportion of people who commute by car today is, varies from about 70% to 80%. And it's the same in the United States. So the vast majority of people rely upon their cars to get around. In Ottawa, which is a relatively appealing city from the perspective of, of public transit, there's about 18% uh, uh, of the public that commutes by, by transit. That's buses and, and light rail. And there's only about 5% that commute by bicycle or cycling. 1% mm -hmm. commutes by walking. And yet uh, every effort is now being made by the city council in Ottawa to increase the number of bicycle paths and promote walking at the expense of the available roadways. The general tendency of the public, the preference of the public, is to commute by cars. That shows up in other ways, incidentally, and I, I won't go on at length about this, but one of the other themes of, of um, those who want to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from transportation is that we should increasingly um, densify our cities. Uh, mm -hmm. that is, we should in, in, ensure that they occupy lower and lower space per residential unit. And... Um, What's happening in Ottawa is that an increasing number of people are moving farther and farther out. And 
the, the fastest expansion, in fact, over the course of the last 15 years, has been to those parts of the urban area that are 30 minutes or more of driving uh, away from the center of Ottawa. Why? Mm -hmm. Because people want to have um, larger houses on lar larger lots uh, at lower cost. And that's what being able to move farther away does. And of course, <laughs> because of that, they tend to rely more and more on cars. So they're trying to bring people more and more into the city to supposedly reduce transportation, but people don't want that. <laughs> no, and, and, and th that tendency, that tendency has been going on for some time. In fact, from 1960 until the present, both in Canada and the United States, um, the densification of cities has basically cut in half. I mean, typically in, in the larger cities in North America, there were kind of 6,000 uh, inhabitants per, per square mile. Now that's down to about 3,000. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, and it's been declining in, in Canada as well, not as sharply, but the, the, you know, the general inclination of, of people is to prefer places where the housing costs are not so high and where the congestion is not so high, which is what is typical of the, very, of the high density cities. I would think it would also be healthier to live in a less dense area. I mean, think of COVID, for example, you know, people all crammed together. I mean, you're going to have more pollution. You're going to have more transmission of disease and just sounds like it's less healthy. Well, the, the pandemic had a, a, a quite salutary um, effect upon or should have had a salutary effect on the view of what we needed to do to achieve transit systems that appeal to people. As I said, prior to 2018, the percentage of people who commuted by car in Ottawa was 72%. And the results of the pandemic were to significantly increase that, or conversely, to significantly reduce the percentage of people that, that commuted by transit. Transit mm -hmm. Transit was down by 65% at the height of the pandemic. Wow. Uh, now it's, it's bounced back and uh, it's, you know, it's come back quite a bit. But, but even today, here we are in, in 2023, in Ottawa, the people who commute by transit are still 35% below what they were before the pandemic. Huh. Uh, and and, and you know, it's, it's entirely possible that it'll take years to get back to those higher levels. Well, it's interesting, you were saying in this write-up you sent me that part of Ottawa's goal is to achieve over 50% of commuters traveling by transit, cycling, walking by 2050. But, I mean, what was it again currently for those things? Well, the current number, well, let's, let's put it this way, the pre-pandemic, if we can use that as a base, the numbers were 72% commuting by car, about 15% by, by transit, a little bit more than by trans, maybe 18%, sorry, about 5% by uh, cycling and 1% by walking. Mm -hmm. So that comes out to 24%. So we're less than half of the target they're, they're shooting for totally. <laughs> well, yes. And the, I mean, put that somewhat differently. The, the advocates of significantly reduced emissions from transportation in urban areas are arguing that Ottawa in particular should increase the percentage of people who commute by cycling or, or uh, transit to at least 20% by 2030. 
Mm-hmm. In Canada, the city that has the, the highest percentage of people who commute by what is called active transportation is Victoria, British Columbia, which has that's, an extraordinary... Sorry, sorry that's, that's walking and bicycling? Walking and cycling, yeah. Yeah, okay. And, and walk and Victoria has a very very mild climate uh, by, by in Canadian terms, far more uh, accommodating for active transportation than a city like Ottawa or or most of the other cities in Canada, and and they only have something like fourteen percent of their people who commute by 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 active transportation. So Ottawa, Ottawa's post city council is saying they want they want us to be fifty percent higher in terms of active transportation than even the, uh, the city of Victoria is. And I mean, the, re- the reality of that is that it's it's simply not going to happen. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there are agendas, if you will, that urban planners have with respect to densification, with respect to use of transit, but they just don't happen to coincide with what the people want. Yeah, exactly. And whenever we are driving, they want us to move over to electric vehicles constantly. And, and, you know, Bob, it struck me, it takes like half an hour or so to charge an EV, takes five minutes to charge a gas powered car. So wouldn't that suggest that you'd need a much, if you had the same number of vehicles, you'd need a much greater amount of the city dedicated simply to charging stations than we currently have to gas stations? Well, well, Tom, it, it only it takes half hour to recharge an, uh, a, a an electric vehicle if you have a, a level three recharger, which is the ones that cost about they cost a little over eight thousand dollars each. You know, oh. and, and uh, yeah, the this, this city of Ottawa and the, and the government of Canada are spending literally billions of dollars subsidizing the installation of these you know high you know rapid rechargers. But the ones that you you install in your home. Uh, are you know generally in the range of five hundred dollars to a thousand each, and then there can be as much as a thousand dollars of installation cost. But those level two chargers that people have in their homes can often take eight to ten hours to to recharge oh, wow. your vehicle, which is why the what people refer to as range anxiety continues, and and it will be a major factor affecting the take up of electric vehicles, even though they're being subsidized very heavily by all all levels of government. Mm-hmm. And and it strikes me that they also want to go 40% of heavy trucks operating the city by 2030? Like that's like six and a half years from now, zero emission. Is that even remotely realistic? <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I, well, the I, I when I read that particular goal, I, I, it, I really had me scratching my head because while it is true that uh, because of very heavy subsidization by, by governments, the number of electric vehicles for private use has been increasing you know, significantly over the last few years. That's not the case with trucks. You know, they're beginning to uh, electrify uh, trucks, you know, the kind of the, the, the larger, larger trucks like the, the, F, the, the Ford F-150, but they're a tiny percentage of annual sales uh, and they don't have the same towing capacity that a, a, an internal combustion engine truck would have. So if you've got a truck and it won't, it can't, it can't tow anything. And it, you know, you've got severe limitation on 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 the use of the truck. So when the city says that at least forty percent of the uh, of the trucks have to be essentially electrified by twenty thirty, that means that in seven years, almost all of the new sales of trucks within the city would have to be electrified trucks, and. Mm. It, 
no matter how much they um, may advertise what they see as the benefits of that, the, the people who actually make decisions about purchasing trucks are not going to go along. And, and uh, one wonders, you know, what kinds of policy instruments they plan to bring to bear to force people to do that. Uh, the, the only thing I can imagine is, is that they'll try to find a way to, to tax truck owners. Mm. Uh, and that'll just, that will just drive, you know, tr- trucking companies out of Ottawa. Yeah, exactly. And they want this billion dollars worth of electric buses by 2027. <laughs> I mean, what's going on there? I mean, have they bought very many of them? And are, do you think they'll really do it? A billion dollars? Well, that, that's the, the proposal is to spend a billion dollars on buying uh, uh, electric buses by 2027. So that, that's kind of a, a front-end loaded portion of the, the city's master climate plan. And the uh, the city did launch, uh, you know, uh, a pilot, if you will, in, in the sense of having a relatively small number of electric vehicles. Uh, and they hadn't even completed the pilot before they decided that they would go ahead to uh, with the uh, purchase of a much larger number in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's what's interesting though is that uh, the city of Toronto, which is a much larger city, of course, than Ottawa has had, had a similar issue. The, 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 the city council had decided that they wanted to invest in, in electric uh, buses. And so they did a pilot with a, a fairly large number, about 40 different buses. And based on a couple of years of, of effort, they found that electric uh, vehicles really didn't operate that well in Canada's climate. Uh, and, and there were, you know, was, there were two frequent breakdowns. And um, of course, when there were breakdowns, you had to have recharging stations in different parts of the city, which would allow you to deal with that. So the lack of range and the lack of reliability led the people, the, the government of the city of Toronto to decide that they're not going to go all electric at all. They may have a number of hybrid buses, but they're going to, they, they're decided not to go with all electric. For the time being, the city of Ottawa, which is a bit more, if you will, a bit more ideological in terms of the way they're approaching this issue, still has decided that they're, they're going to try to do that. Now, mind you, the only way that they're able to do that is by having the federal government of Canada subsidize the purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. they, they, they haven't dared, if you will, to indicate to the taxpayers of Ottawa that they're the ones that are going to have to pick up the tab for this. <laughs> and of course, Ottawa gets a lot colder than Toronto. <laughs> Indeed, much colder. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, now this is something I think that will really concern people who have businesses in the downtown core or on the Byward market. Restrictions on parking in some areas and outright bans on parking in the Byward market, which for our listening audience is the main entertainment district of Ottawa and the downtown core of Ottawa. By 2030, they're going to ban all the parking? Like, I mean, have they even asked the owners of these companies and businesses and bars and everything else if they like that? <laughs> My guess, Tom, is two things. First, I don't think most of the municipal councillors uh, even read the, the, the climate plan as it relates to issues like, like parking and banning parking, because those who are represent the parts of the city that uh, are, you know, the downtown core, the commercial centre, the, the tourism centre of Ottawa, if they, had, if they knew that the businesses in that area would no longer be able to rely upon people 
you know, commuting by car and, and parking to do their business there. They, they, I can't imagine how they could possibly have approved that. And, and, and I'm further convinced that the businesses that, uh, that uh, operate in downtown Ottawa and in the Byward Market area must be unaware of the fact that the city itself is proposing to eliminate the parking. As you know, putting aside for a moment the, the inconvenience of not having parking facilities available to you, what they're essentially saying is that we all have to rely upon the, the, the rapid transit system. And Ottawa's have had a very unhappy experience, not just with this bus system, but with the construction of a light rail system here, which has been, which has far exceeded the costs uh, that were initially anticipated and, and, and have delivered very unreliable service, constantly delayed and service that people have not been able to rely upon in terms of arriving on time. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the combination of, of eliminating you know, the possibility of parking and forcing people to rely upon an unreli- unreliable transit service is just not going to work. Mm-hmm. Now, you presented to the City of Ottawa Environment and Climate Change Committee uh, back on April 18th. And how did they react to you telling them these things about transportation and density and all this sort of stuff? I mean, were they digging deep into it to try to find out what's going on or what did they do? They didn't ask a single question that put, went to the substance of my presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, oh, the only question that I got was from one of the councillors who uh, was interested in knowing more clearly what uh, my conclusion was in terms of what the city should do about its uh, master climate plan. And I told him that a plan that has a cost that is in the range of, you know, $57 billion uh, by 2050 and has the prospect of offering virtually zero effects on global temperatures and, and weather is one that deserves to be completely rethought. Yeah, for sure. You know, their war on cars just goes on and on and on. I mean, they're saying they want to convert many streets into car-free zones. I don't know how you drive to your home then. I mean, how's that going to work? <laughs> I, 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 it, that is, it's, it's baffling. Right? That, that sort of thing is, I suppose what they have in mind is that there are many European um, areas, particularly in the, you know, in the heavily, heavy tourist areas of, of major cities in Europe that have eliminated uh, vehicles so that people can walk uh, and, and, and do their shopping. Uh, and I can see how, you know, that, that can be fairly appealing in some areas. You don't have to deal with the congestion and noise of having large amounts of vehicles in the area if you're in a, in a commercial area. But if they plan to do that in a residential area, how, I, I don't know how in the world they, they, they think that's going to work, um, particularly since they um, want to significantly reduce the availability of parking facilities everywhere in the city. Oh, oh, yeah. And also I see eliminate requirements that developers provide parking for new residential and commercial developments. So, so they're not even going to have parking spaces in these new residential and commercial developments. I mean, they're just going to be box houses, I guess, with no driveways. <laughs> Yes, I, I recently talked to someone who is a developer in Ottawa, and and um, he acknowledged that um, there, uh, from the perspective of people that want to buy houses, they tend to want at least one and preferably two parking spaces for their houses, so that mm-hmm. because that's what people want, you know, they they, they let's 
those are those are, are consumer preferences. But from the perspective of many developers, the, the the more parking spaces, the less space they have to build units, and therefore the lower their profits. So they're quite happy when uh, you know some government department eliminates the requirement to provide parking. But I had to ask myself, well, if if you were given the opportunity to, to um, let's say move into a, a multi-unit residential bu- building, and you were told that uh, you know this is the price, and say, oh, but by the way, there is no parking for you, mm. um, and and oh, you, you know, and you're you're living you know 20, 30 kilometers outside of the core, you know, you, you're going to think twice because uh, that basically means that um, you're going to be 100% rely upon reliant on public transit to get you wherever you want to go, whenever you want to go. Uh, I can't, I can't imagine that's going to be very appealing. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it strikes me, I mean, you're going to be telling people, okay, here's your house. And oh, this is the community parking lot. It's like a half a kilometer from your house. Uh, so you, can, you can see people once again, trudging through the snow at minus 30 with groceries. They can't drive to their own home. I mean, it, it sounds completely insane. You know, in the second half of our program, I'm hoping we can put this in context, but just to get a head start, because we have a couple minutes before the break, how do today's cars compare with cars, let's say around 1970? Because they're always squawking about, oh, we have to get rid of cars because of all the pollution. But I mean, really, are today's cars like they were in 1970? They're significantly better. As you mentioned uh, in your introduction, I formerly worked uh, in Transport Canada uh, as a director general responsible for environmental affairs there. And uh, one of the things that we looked at was the constantly looked at and looked at ways of improving was the environmental performance of, of automobiles in Canada. And, and the reality is that any car that, is, that is, was built in 2005 or later uh, emits 1% of the pollutants that a car that was built in 1970 did. 1%? Wow. 1%. It meant the, what's called criteria air contaminants. So, you know, the real pollution is 1%. In fact, a car that is traveling at, at, at 60 miles an hour uh, today emits less pollutants than a car did in 1970 simply idling and standing still. Standing still. Oh, that, wow. That's the difference. Of course, what the climate change activists would say, ah, yes, but they still consume hydrocarbons. Yes, they do, because um, the efficiency, the efficiency with which cars use gasoline or diesel fuel is also 50% better than it was back in 1970. So in, in, in every way, cars are significantly more environmentally benign than they were back in 1970. Yeah. Uh, The the war on cars continues. Yeah. And, you know, I should just point out to our listening audience, this person I'm interviewing, Bob Lyman, he was the Director General of Environmental Affairs in Transport Canada. So he knows what he's talking about. So we'll be back to help put this into context, you know, looking at What's happening in the world in general? How much would Ottawa contribute to solving the supposed climate crisis? So we'll be back with Bob Lyman, who spent 37 years in the Canadian public service as an economist and policy advisor right after the break. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on all the fear-mongering, but deep down you try and minimize viral exposure and your risk of getting sick. 
You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a pulvinone iodine nasal solution. I don't need to tell you just how powerful a nasal cleansing formula with xylitol, pulvinone iodine, and vitamin D3 for immune support could be. In fact, my attorney told me not to tell you. Google it and find out for yourself. Now, get yourself a bottle of American-made Cofix RX nasal solution. Let's get out and live again. CofixRx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com. Use coupon code out loud and get 20% off. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body, and now they found the solution. The Miracle Enzyme Natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced Nutrition Company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Oral hygiene hasn't changed in 50 years, but our diet and the way we eat has, creating an environment in your mouth for bacteria to wreak havoc on your teeth and gums. For better oral health, get Spry Dental Defense an oral care line designed to combat acid-creating bacteria. The toothpaste, mouthwash, mints, and gum all contain xylitol, a natural ingredient shown to dramatically improve oral health. Spry can be found online and at all fine natural retailers. AmericaOutloud.com if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. 
America Out Loud Talk Radio. The liberty and justice for all. So I'm back with Bob Lyman, who spent 37 years in the Canadian public service as an economist and policy advisor. Really relevant to this discussion is the fact that he was Director General of Environmental Affairs in Transport Canada. So he knows what he's talking about when it comes to transportation. So, Bob, a lot of this is based on some underlying assumptions that uh, may not be quite true. Can you tell us what those assumptions would be that is pushing all of this move to EV batteries or electric vehicles, et cetera, et cetera? I mean, what are these assumptions? Uh, yes, Tom, there's really kind of a, a chain of logic that um, climate activists um, follow and, and expect that the rest of us will go along with. And if I may, I'll kind of start with a general and, and move more to the specific with respect to transportation. The first assumption, or, or if you will, is that um, climate change poses uh, the risk of, of a catastrophe uh, for the world. Um, and um, that's based upon their view of the science, but also upon the modeling that is done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, and um, I won't go into the, obviously the details of the science here, but I will, I will comment that um, the, the, the modeling that is used now, um, it uses what's called the worst case scenario. It tends to make things look a lot worse than uh, they would if, if you were looking at more realistic cases. The, the next kind of major assumption, if you will, or, or, or myth, myth relates to the fact that people think that somehow if we reduced emissions in Canada, that would somehow change the trends in global emissions, that, that Canada has a significant influence over the trends in global emissions. The reality, of course, is that two-thirds of global emissions now are, come from the non-OECD countries, that is the developing countries of the world, and virtually all of the growth in emissions is happening there as well, places like India and China. Um, so, frankly, their emissions growth is, is based upon what they see as necessary to provide needs for their population and their economy. And what Canada does has very little influence on that. The third connection here is, if you will, is that light duty vehicle emissions are an important part of, of the Canadian emissions. And as I, I commented in the first part of, our, of, our, of your show, um, light duty vehicles, in fact, only represent 11% of Canada's emissions. So if we totally eliminated every car, SUV and pickup truck and went back to horses and bicycles, uh, nine out of every 10 uh, emissions would continue exactly the way they are. Mm -hmm. um, Just before you go on, Bob, during the mayor election, both Nor Kadri, who's a prophet at Ottawa U, and Catherine McKenney, who were both candidates for mayor, they led the audience to believe, and in fact, I think Kadri said it directly, that Ottawa was going to lead the world in reducing greenhouse gases. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because one of the questioners from the audience said, not going to happen. Like, do you think China cares what Ottawa does? Exactly. I mean, the, the, uh, we, we could have, we could go on with a whole other show, Tom, talking about all of the, of the factors that are causing China to uh, increase uh, their emissions. Uh, uh, and, and in fact, I mean, India is not far behind. Uh, so, and, and they're, I mean, they are naturally, regardless of what one thinks about 
about China, um, they are trying to provide their population with uh, reliable and affordable energy services. Mm-hmm. And that means reliance on hydrocarbons. And there is absolutely nothing that any other country does that is going to deter them from that path. Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, it, it's also interesting. People will say, oh, but China's building so many wind turbines, so much coal. Yes, but they're also expanding coal at a huge rate, aren't they? I mean, they're building coal stations all over the world. They're building an average of two new coal stations every week. Oh, my every goodness. Every week. hundred, <laughs> hundred a year, more than a hundred a year. It, wow. is, it, is, it, is a, it is probably the fastest expansion of coal burning power plants in the history of the world. Wow. And as you say, yes, they're, they're increasing their use of wind and solar and oil and gas and coal. They're introducing their everything. use of everything. <laughs> um, but they're certainly not reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. They're growing yeah. at, at an extraordinary rate. Well, they must love it then when they see us crippling ourselves by getting rid of the least expensive energy source, because it would then shift the production of products that are energy intensive to China. That is one of the central issues. We, we, you and I are talking about this in terms of environmental issues, if you will. But there, there's an important link to economic issues. And, and that is that the cost of conversion from one set of energy services to another uh, is, is very, very great. And it's, it falls particularly heavily upon those industries that are known as uh, emission intensive and trade exposed. Uh, and in, in, in countries like Canada, that tends to be the energy industries, but it also manufacturing and resource industries as well. To the extent that we drive up the costs of operation of those industries in Canada or in the United States or in Europe, we severely impair their competitiveness rather, relative to the countries like China or, or India or, or Vietnam or others. And, and consequently, we're driving them out of, out of it. We're de- industrializing the, the OECD area. And that, that is particularly happening in, in Europe, but it's also happening in Canada and the United States as well. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I understand that if you're pushing these industries to the developing world, that they cause what's called leakage, where in fact the overall pollution and even greenhouse gas you know, emissions would actually increase. You're making a shoe in Canada. You have high uh, environmental standards, you know, quality of labor standards, things like that. Go to push it all to China, then you're going to have worse environmental standards in the production of that shoe. So, aren't exactly. you going to actually see an increase in pollution because of our driving our businesses out of the country? Exactly, and and uh, that the the uh, there is a, one of the great tragedies of, of these issues is that. While what we're talking about here is generally known, um, it's very difficult to actually measure it. The only thing that economists in, in Canada and the United States have been able to do is to get to the point where we can better identify which, which particular industries are, are most exposed. You know, industries like petrochemicals and, and mining and, and uh, certainly oil and gas, cement, steel, automobile manufacturing, those types of industries are the ones that are heavily exposed. So we can we can identify that, and we can even say, to some extent, uh, how much a given increase in energy costs will reduce their competitiveness. But but nobody has yet been able to measure 
the extent to which we are losing industry as a direct result of the climate policies. Mm -hmm. Well, it also strikes me that you would want to keep the industries here, not just because of our economy, which is very important in jobs, but because we have higher environmental standards. So if you were truly interested in uh, reducing emissions, truly interested in, in cleaning up different industries, you want them to stay in the developing countries. Well, exactly. I mean, and, and the root of that is in the fact that many environmental issues and certainly climate change to the extent that is a, a, a serious environmental issue are global in nature. And so where the emissions occur is insignificant. It's the fact that they take place somewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it seemed to me that before a decision is made to increase an environmental standard for a particular business, let's say steel, for example, there should be an analysis made to say, okay, if we increase the requirements of companies here, we don't want to drive them to China because then the pollution will be more. So they have to sort of balance it. Are we going to drive them out? Are we not? Are we just so maybe we don't increase the environmental standards here? Do they do this kind of assessment when they pass these new regulations? No, there is a, is a short answer to that. They, they don't. And, and I mean, if you go back to the very beginnings of the environmental movement that we're experiencing today, a lot of it occurred uh, in as a result of a uh, international conferences that occurred in the late 1980s and, and were led by people like Maurice Strong, the Canadian who was very influential in the international environmental movement. Um, and at that time, they clearly understood that achieving much more demanding environmental standards in the developed, developed countries, more industrialized countries, would tend to shift the uh, investment and manufacturing to the developing countries. But they, in fact, favored that because they saw that as a form of global economic, you know, economic justice, where, we, where uh, we'd all be better off if we could move more and more uh, of the income and wealth of the world to the developing countries. And that's probably so. I mean, and, but the problem with that is that you, it, we've reached the point where it's so severely affecting the economies of countries in, in the OECD, that it's having broader uh, strategic implications as well. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that's something that no one is looking at uh, sufficiently. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because if you were a sensible environmentalist, you would be pushing the government to make sure that they didn't drive companies out of Canada because we had really good environmental controls. I know I said that before, but I think it's really worth harping on that real environmental protection should want the businesses to stay here. Well, it should. But, but I mean, in, in a sense, what you're, what you're saying is that there, um, there needs to be a strategic vision uh, on the part of people that are promoting climate uh, transitions or, or, or transitions from one set of economy to the other. And that's asking a lot. Right now, the um, climate activists are, are very much believe that governments have the capacity to centrally plan the transition, energy transitions. And by that, I mean that they can use a combination of policy instruments. They can use taxes and they can use subsidies and they can use tax incentives and they can use regulations and, and so on. A whole mixture of different policy instruments to somehow... Um, manage the economy through transitions to a different place than it is now. And they think that they can do that fast, but that it's going to somehow be managed 
in 27 years. That is totally contrary to the history of energy transitions that have occurred in the world. Um, mm. as, as you know, uh, Vaclav Smil is a, is a retired professor of geology from the University of Manitoba, but he's the world's foremost expert in energy transitions. And, and he has produced a number of books which have examined this question of how it is that, that transitions occur and how long they take. And his conclusion is that they have to be driven by market forces. They cannot be forced by governments. They can't be planned by governments. Governments don't have the, the capacity of, of, you know, and the information and the, and the wisdom to know how, how to manage transitions. And mm -hmm. yet, right now, they're attempting to do that. Um, and mm -hmm. you're, what you've just pointed out is one of the gaps. So they're trying to have a complete transition by 2050 in many of these different sectors and energy in general. How long does Vaclav Smil say that this would happen if, if, and this is a big if, it was actually economically and engineeringly viable? Looking at the history of energy transitions, uh, his estimate tends to be that a, uh, a, a market-driven transition of, of, of the magnitude we're talking about here would probably take 50 to 70 years. Mm. Trying to do it really quickly will undoubtedly fail. Do you, yes. and, and we're just going to see, like, a, what do you think is going to be the result? <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's the, you know, the old $64 million question. What, 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 I think the result will be that climate policy will, I, I use the term, it'll hit the wall. It, it will get to the point where some combination of failures in terms of the technology or the marketability or the public acceptance uh, of all of these proposed transitions will come to, to a dead end. It, they will not be feasible. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, and, uh, and what, what that very well might be, will, will, or the way it will show up, will be in significantly increased costs of energy. Uh, for industry, significantly increased cost of energy for consumers, much higher housing costs, et cetera. And the public will, will see that. They'll, you know, they'll, they're already being affected by inflation, but it'll be much worse. And they'll react to that. And they will basically vote out of office the people that are trying to achieve this transformation. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that may not happen fast enough to avoid some very serious and adverse, even long-term consequences for the economies of uh, Europe, Canada, and the United States. Well, also, it strikes me that you don't rebuild a coal station overnight. I mean, if they're closing these things down, and in some cases, like in Europe, they're actually smashing um, fossil fuel and you know nuclear stations, they're actually dismantling them. I mean, let's say you wake up one morning as a politician and you realize, uh-oh, this was a big mistake. You don't turn it around on a dime, do you? I mean, these take time to build. Absolutely right. That's why I think, as I say, the, the, uh, the damages will be severe and long-lasting. Uh, it'll take a long time to turn it around. Right now in Canada, um, all of the major political parties have, have accepted this, this net zero goal, which basically calls for the essential elimination of, of use of hydrocarbons by 2050. And um, all of the uh, major industry associations support as well. Academia, mass media, they all support this. It's not the same in the United States. In the United States, it's become a, 
it's more of a Democrat versus Republican issue, because I think many of the Democrats don't really understand just how traumatic uh, the, the consequences of such a transition will be. But, you know, if once people begin to see the, um, the difficulties, the costs, and the, and the duration uh, that's required, I think they're going to start to, to you know, call into question the wisdom of these policies. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Jay Lair, who was my co-host when we interviewed you last, actually, we really missed Dr. Lair. He thought that what happened in Texas in February 2021 when up to 700 people died and $200 billion in damages, he thought that's going to have to happen over and over and over across the Western world before people wake up. Uh, are you that pessimistic or do you think people will wake up more easily? I keep trying to see um, reasons to be optimistic and failing to do so, Tom. I really believe that those who, like you and I, uh, try to warn of the risks um, are simply not able to get access to the mainstream media. And even when we do, uh, the uh, voices of censorship keep us from being heard more widely. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and until the public is willing to hear in a, in a fair and, and, and even-handed way the arguments of those who um, dissent from the, the mainstream view, we're headed for real trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the problems is that there's too many people now in all sorts of sectors, the banking sector, you know, the energy sector itself, you know, the they're making a fortune on this. They're making huge amounts of money. I mean, there's over a billion US dollars a day being spent on climate finance, according to the Climate Policy Initiative. And most of that is going to the renewable energy sector. You know, I was at the Canada 2020 Net Zero Leadership Conference a couple of weeks ago, and I tried to speak to some of the top people because I was saying, you know, you keep emphasizing how we have to go faster and faster and faster. You know, there's no time to lose. We have to move forward with this massive energy transition. And I said, you know, I think we should slow down. Because as you probably saw last week in the Financial Post, Ross McKittrick was writing about how well the finance or sorry, the computer models are working with regards to the climate change issue. And these people practically ran away from me. I mean, because they're making their fortune. They are the head of environmental sustainability for the Steel Institute or whatever. That's their job. And I think the trouble is there's now so many vested interests that it's very hard to get people to back off. And, you know, I actually was talking to the editor of a leading Canadian newspaper quite a few years ago, and I said, you know, you used to cover both sides of this issue, but you no longer do. Why is that? Why don't you just show both sides the arguments that are going on and the public can make up their own mind? And at first they said, oh, well, we agree with David Suzuki. I said, well, that's very nice. But do you have even a person on do you have a person on staff who has even a bachelor of science so they can actually, you know, evaluate the two sides? And he said, "Uh, no. So I said, "Okay, so why do you do it? And he told me confidentially, so I can't use his name or his newspaper. But he said, if we publicized your side of the story, our advertisers wouldn't like it. And I thought later, yeah, of course, because that's their main revenue and catastrophe and excitement sells. That's part of the reason, of course, because, of course, circulation numbers are higher and 
the advertisers like that. But the other reason is that they're using the climate scare to sell their products. You have car manufacturers in the EV field. You have printer companies, all sorts of companies saying, we're reducing climate, or sorry, we're reducing greenhouse gases to save the climate. So the last thing they want is Tim Patterson or somebody on the other page saying, you can't stop climate change. You know, so I mean, it's going to be really hard because the amount of money being poured into this is so huge. And the leaders, I mean, look at Mark Carney. I mean, he was the keynote speaker at Canada 2020 Net Zero Leadership Conference. And by the way, that was the best part of the whole conference because he was so boring. He put practically everyone to sleep. <laughs> so I was cheering, yay, yay. This is a motivational speech. Um, okay, put him to sleep. But yeah, so I mean, he is, was the former Bank of, the, of uh, Canada. What do they call him? President of the Bank of Canada? Chairman. I think. Chairman, these people, there's so much money involved. It's going to be very tough to undo this. And of course, these people control the press to a large extent as well. So just to end off, can you actually put in context? I mean, talking about Ottawa, which is less than 1% of Canada's emissions and Canada. I mean, how much do we really contribute? And is this kind of like puncturing a life raft with a pin while other countries are using a chainsaw? <laughs> Well, the simple number is that I mean, Canada's emissions uh, uh, are in the range of, of 700 million tons a year, which is about 1.6% of the, the world's total. And the world's total is steadily increasing. Uh, so uh, our percentage becomes marginally smaller and smaller every year. But of course, the, if, if you accept the theory of, of climate change as it's propounded, the key thing is not the level of annual emissions, but the level of, of carbon dioxide equivalent concentrations in the atmosphere. And it takes a very, very long time for the emissions to actually change the concentration. So Canada is, is, is it's, it's a very small decimal point, you know, before we would have any effect whatsoever. When I have seen people try to come up with a uh, estimate of the effect in terms of global average temperatures that would happen if Canada's emissions were to be totally eliminated. And it runs to something like 0.017% um, <laughs> or, or degrees, I should say, over, yeah. over, over um, the, that's the period of 2100. And what people neglect to mention is that that's in 2100, because with the continuation beyond that, we would get the same amount of warming two years later anyway. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so, so it, 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 pointless. It, you know, it really is, it's kind of silly. It, it, I mean, it's not silly in terms of its effects, but it's, it's silly in terms of its logic, but, it, but it's poorly understood. You know, it, it, very, very, people don't understand the science. They don't understand the international diplomacy. They don't understand the modeling and they don't understand the economics. And most importantly, in a sense, they don't understand the effect on their own lives. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's the, the area that people who want to influence policy need to focus on, letting people know how it will affect their lives. Well, yeah, that's extremely important. And it has to be done in a very short and very understandable way. And you'll be glad to hear that we're about to start a project at International Climate Science Coalition producing YouTube shorts in which we explain many of the things you've been talking about in a 60 second or less snippet in a very simple way and showing people how 
their lives are going to be affected if this continues. And, and I think that, you know, we're going to actually have significant impact. And as I was telling you before the interview, a sample that was done got 800,000 views. So I really do think that we will win. I guess our goal and our objective here is to make the time period until we win as short as possible. But it ain't going to change by tomorrow, is it? No, unfortunately. Yeah. So my guest today has been Robert Lyman. He was Senior Director of Energy Policy when the climate issues first arose. He was actually the first federal co-chair of the Federal Provincial Committee on Climate Change. And as I said earlier, it's super relevant to this interview, Director General, Environmental Affairs and Transport Canada. So thanks so much for being on our show, Bob. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Tom. Okay. So this is Tom Harris signing out from the other side of the story. I'd like to remind our listening audience that we rely on donations to keep our show running. We hope that you'll consider donating at icsc-climate.com.